No, I'm so excited for this, guys. I think this is a real answer to prayer. I, I believe that God has led us in this, and my, my prayer is that it, it's, it's very helpful. It's very helpful and, and is a tool that ultimately points us to Jesus, and I, I believe that it will do just that. The reasons for this Equip series, and we've talked about this a little bit on Sunday nights, but the rules of engagement have changed culturally in so many ways. There's tremendous access to information. And as we live our lives, we're just, we're, we're, we're getting information constantly, day after day, from all kinds of different sources. And that's wonderful. That's a wonderful thing that we have access to. But information does not equal truth. And there's, th th there are all kinds of different theories and doctrines that are put out, sometimes forcefully, sometimes casually. And we want to be equipped as believers to engage with the truth to believe the truth, to have true convictions. Also, there is this, these compelling imperatives from the pastoral epistles that admonish the elders, pastors of the church to guard the doctrine of the church as, as this thing of fundamental importance. And, and we feel that this is an opportunity for us as pastors to do just that, to, to, uh, to guard the doctrine of the church from really attacks that I think we're experiencing on many different fronts. And so we want to do that carefully and faithfully. The other thing that uh, is motivating for me in initiating this, this series is that we are living in a culture of deconstruction where uh, kind of the, the uh, mode of operation of the day is to take the things that we've heard or that we've believed in the church or even outside of the church and deconstruct them. This is very common to the, the way that we think in our city and, and in our country right now. And frankly, we just, we don't want to fall victim to that as followers of Jesus Christ. We don't want to, to submit to the culture of deconstruction, but simply seek God to believe things that are true to the best of our ability by the help of the Holy Spirit. And the last thing is, Jesus has given the church a tremendous mission. It's a difficult mission. It's a very difficult mission to, to expand the kingdom of God and bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, teaching all that, he, uh, all that, that Jesus commanded. And God is and has raised up leaders for that purpose, gifted equipped, spirit-led leaders. And we want to see that. I know I want to be that kind of a leader, and we want to see in our church, in the context of Awakened Church, God truly raising up spirit-filled leaders. And I think by the very nature of the fact that you're here this morning and that you want to engage in this way, that that's, that's something that's likely on, on your minds. And I just want to encourage that strongly that you are needed, your gifts are needed, that the strengths that God has given you, they, they are needed for the church to accomplish its, its uh, God-given imperatives. So we hope that this time really does help. It's not like a leadership development time in and of itself, and this is exactly where you learn to be a leader. No, 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 not, not at all. But we hope that it is a helpful, very useful tool as you grow in your leadership and take some real steps to lead others. So, um, the Equip series, just what it is, 
It is a collection of courses designed to make known the beliefs and values of Awakened Church in such a way that they inform our practices, that is what we do in our, our culture, who we are as a community. We don't just want to believe things without practicing them and without having those, those beliefs really inform who, who we are, how we relate to one another. And ultimately, it is the culture within the church that will win the day, with, within our church. We can talk. We can do the work to believe right things, and we, we should. That's what this is. That's what this time is. But my, my prayer is that we would possess a culture of devotion to Christ, that we would spur each other on to run hard after him. And when I say that our beliefs inform our practices, I do mean that, but it, it might be better to say that our true beliefs inform our practices. Maybe our practices reveal our beliefs. Do I believe that God hears my prayers, but I don't pray? Well, maybe I believe in a sense, but there is likely disbelief lurking underneath the surface. Our, our prayer ought to be that our true beliefs, that is what we truly believe inwardly, would be true beliefs. Does that make sense? That our true beliefs would be true beliefs. That they would, in fact, be true. That they would, in fact, correspond to reality. And I believe when we, when we have those truths embedded in our hearts that correspond to reality, they will point us to devotion to Christ. They will point us to the Lord. So through the Equip series, you should be able to answer more clearly the what and why of those beliefs and values. You should understand and appreciate how we relate to the wider body of Christ. Uh, confidence in our convictions with respect for all the children of God. Confidence in our convictions with respect for all the children of God. This is our aim. Conviction and humility. To be solidly grounded in what you believe with a humble, gracious heart. Uh, there's a quote from this unknown, pretty much unknown German theologian from the 17th century, except for, this, except for this quote. He's known just really for this quote. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And this quote, it comes from a tract written during the Thirty Years' War, which is a bloody period during European history. It's devastating war, really fought in part due to theological disagreements. And this quote, I think, can represent our heart as we pursue greater depth and unity with one another in what we believe. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. There's freedom. Uh, this should in no way feel oppressive, should feel free. And in all things, even for those who are outside of the body of Christ, who reject uh, orthodox Christian doctrine, we should have charity and grace and compassion. I'd also like to, uh, as we begin here, reference an analogy made famous by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. In this analogy, C.S. Lewis describes a great house with many rooms, and some of you may be familiar with this. The halls of the house represent mere Christianity. That, that, that's what the book's all about. The bottom line, the halls represent the bottom line, the essentials to which all Christians must agree. But one cannot make a home in the halls. 
We must trust the leading of God to enter a room. We must, by the very nature of things, come to convictions that go beyond the bottom line essentials of Christian doctrine. And I hope that this series will help us take ownership of our room and live gladly within it while loving and respecting those who reside in other rooms in the household of faith. So uh, just by way of preview, next month we are going to be spending our time on the topic handling the word of truth. And the the next course, it'll be a multi-month course, uh, unlike today where we're powering through the... uh, we're powering through the whole course today in one section, or in one session. So uh, next will be, what is the Bible? The, the, the big question, what is the Bible and how should one approach it? That's, that's primary. Lastly, uh, we've provided some note pages that we just passed around. With, uh, there's a basic outline of kind of what we're going to be going through today. And, uh, and then some notes for you to, to write down the things, that, the things that seem significant to you. I think... Familiarize yourself with the outline so that you know where we're going. And you can write down verses, key ideas, uh, quote, quotations, uh, and, uh, and, and the like. And I think it will help you to go back to those notes and process kind of, there's going to be a lot of information this morning, what we've talked about, and uh, make it something that you're not just hearing, but something you're engaging with, uh, where there is a level of ownership. Okay, so... To complete the equip course, this equip course, you'll need to answer some basic questions online. So we have a, we'll have a form online at the end of this time in order for you to complete. Just I would recommend doing, doing this on a laptop. Uh, awakencolumbus.com slash equip. That's where you're going to find all, uh, all the resources that are, are mentioned during this time. Awakencolumbus.com slash equip. So there will be a, a form for you to fill out. Um, and uh, if you prefer writing on paper, then you can uh, just ask Brandon and make him do the work of printing off these questions, giving them to you, and then painstakingly entering them uh, online uh, and hating his life. So uh, you can't, that, that is an option as well. I know not everybody likes to um, type on a computer. Uh, or I don't know, you probably all do. But uh, I want to ask you guys to, to look up something right now as we begin, and you can find this at awakencolumbus.com slash equip. So you're going to practice going to this link, awakencolumbus.com slash equip. And there's a document there that's called uh, the Gospel Word Study. I think you'll find this a helpful reference, even as we go through this time today, I think you'll find it a helpful reference. So take, take a, I'm just going to give you a moment to bring that up on your phone. Say, while you're doing that, so we've given you these manila folders, the outline, and some note pages. The folders are just so that you can protect these for the time being. We're working out the kinks still of the Equip Series, and hopefully by next month, we'll have an Equip Series notebook that you can then put everything from today in. But the manila folders are so they don't get folded up and trashed in the meantime. So really try to hold on to those. I think you'll want those in the future, and we... We hope that the Equip series, your own notes, your own engagement with the scriptures will be a resource for you for years to come. So, uh, yeah, treasure the, the notes that you take today.
Okay, how are you guys doing? You have that resource up on your phone? Everybody good on that? Okay, why don't you take a moment and just kind of scroll through it? Yep. You click on the thing that says Gospel Word Study. Who's cool enough to have Sprint and not have it work? Okay, you're going to do that, Brandon? Yeah. Okay, Brandon will put up the Wi-Fi password. You definitely don't give up on getting that document on your phone. You'll want that for later in the morning. Okay. Um, I'd, I'd like to pray here before we kind of move, our, move, move past our introduction. So would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, sit underneath the teaching of Jesus in your word, Lord. That is what we're doing. That, that We long to, to understand and live by the truth of the scriptures that you've given us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that. God, we pray that this equip series and this time today, uh, Lord, would, would help us to follow you more closely. Lord, to believe what corresponds to reality. Lord, to experience the freedom that comes from believing things that are true. God, I pray that you would protect us from lies, that you protect us from false doctrine. And uh, Lord, I pray for every single person in this room that you would help us to take a greater sense of ownership, Lord, of the core doctrines of our faith. Lord, that we would believe them, that we would live by them, that we would be transformed by them in a fresh way. Lord, and that we would be, help us to, to, to be competent to proclaim them to others who so desperately need to hear, God. And we pray that your spirit would just uh, would, would fill us and lead us during this time, God. We trust you to do that, Lord. We submit ourselves to you, and we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, so this is a little different. This time is a little different than our... our uh, expository preaching on Sunday night or, or probably things you hear in most other Christian contexts. It's, it's going to require a little more note-taking, uh, a little more maybe mental toughness than, uh, than, than what, uh, what is typically required when we meet together. So I want to encourage you to have that mindset to be mentally and emotionally engaged. We're with God He's here with us. These are his, script, his scriptures primarily that we're hearing today. Um, but to make the most of this, we've got to engage with our, our whole mind and heart. So we're beginning really with the first things first, the gospel. Now, why start with the gospel? The gospel is the beginning and end of our beliefs and values. 1 Timothy 1 8 through 11. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and 
for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. And this last sentence is the key part that I want you to understand. Any idea that is in opposition to sound doctrine conforming to the gospel is listed alongside kidnapping, murder, sexual immorality, etc. The list goes on. Uh, the same word translated here, sound, is often translated healthy. If something is sound, it is correct, but it, it also goes beyond correct. Life-giving, healthy doctrine conforms to the gospel that God entrusted to Paul. Bad and destructive doctrine opposes the gospel. The end of bad doctrine, the end of bad doctrine is a confusion of the person and work of Christ. And we've seen this numerous times throughout the history of the church. Now, when we talk about the gospel, we're referencing the Greek noun euangelion or its verb counterpart euangelizo. And the word simply means good news or in the case of the verb form, to preach the good news. This, this word, gospel, good news, to preach the gospel, to preach the good news, used in the theological sense, the sense that we're using it today, it's become synonymous with a clearly defined set of truths and historical events uh, expressed in the New Testament. Now, I want to ask you to take a moment and really look through that gospel word study document that hopefully you all have at this point. This list contains every instance in the New Testament where either of these words are used, euangelion or uh, euangelizo. And just to go through, uh, just to go through these Instances where the words are used, I think even in the individual verse forms, can help us get a sense of how the word is used throughout the New Testament. So I'd like to give you just a minute on your own to go through this list and just familiarize yourself with how uh, these two words are used throughout the New Testament. Maybe make your way past the Gospels into the letters if you've not already done so. (laughs) 
I hope the word study helps give you a sense of the importance of the gospel uh, and the truths contained in it. So let's get some background information. We want to begin to hear this word as it would have been heard in the first century. Like any attempt to understand the meaning of a biblical word or phrase, we, we've got to make a good faith effort to hear the word or phrase from the perspective of the first audience. These words of scripture were God-breathed with a fixed intent and meaning. We cannot change the fixed first century meaning of the Holy Spirit-inspired words of scripture. This is true even as those words penetrate the hearts of individuals to produce a unique effect here and now. So, background information. And I'm going to tell a bit of a story. Stick with me here. This may take a few minutes, but I think you'll find it helpful so that we can really understand the thrust of the meaning of uh, these important words. Roughly 4,000 years ago, a man named Abraham was born into a world dominated by superstition and pagan religious ritual. God revealed himself to Abraham and promised to make his descendants into a great nation. This nation would be so great that all peoples on the earth would be blessed through Abraham. This is in Genesis 12, 3b. Abraham believed God, and according to Genesis 15, 6, his faith was credited to him as righteousness. Long past the age of childbearing, Abraham and his wife Sarah conceived a child and named him Isaac. This was the beginning of the Abrahamic nation God promised. Now, that promise appeared to be in jeopardy, uh, as it had before, when God commanded Abraham to present Isaac as a sacrificial offering. According to Hebrews 11.9, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And as Abraham began to follow through on his command, believing that God himself would provide the lamb for the burnt offering, God intervenes. He stopped Abraham from harming, killing Isaac, and God himself provided a ram for the burnt offering. Now, Isaac would go on to have multiple sons, but the heir through whom God's promises would be fulfilled was his son Jacob, who, whom God later renamed Israel. Israel had 12 sons. Joseph, the second from the youngest, was abused and sold into slavery by his own brothers. And after years of suffering in slavery, followed by false imprisonment in Egypt, God intervenes and he brought Joseph out of prison. He, he actually saved Egypt and the surrounding regions from famine, from death, through Joseph's dream and his wisdom. And he elevated Joseph, God elevated Joseph to a place of honor and influence second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. Now, due to the severe famine that Joseph predicted, his brothers came to Egypt. And through this, they were reconciled to Joseph, and they remained in Egypt under the blessing of Pharaoh himself. Now, each of the 12 brothers and their wives, they bore children, and they grew in number. They became a, a true nation while in Egypt. But a new Pharaoh, who did not know Joseph, came to power and began, began to, to mistreat the 12 families that had now become 12 
tribes of Israel. For 400 years, the Israelites were brutally enslaved by the Egyptians until Moses, through Moses, God brought them out of Egypt as a nation, this Abrahamic nation. He provided for them. He disciplined them. He revealed himself to them. He gave them a constitution. He led them in practices that would separate them from the godless people by whom they were surrounded. And along with the constitution, uh, he revealed to them through Moses his moral commandments by which all people of the earth must live. Now, the people of Israel continued to reject God, experience his discipline, return to God, experience his blessing, and reject God yet again. This became an endless cycle. Discontent to live with God as the king, the Israelites clamored for a national leader to rule over them. They wanted to be like their neighboring kingdoms. God warned them explicitly where this would lead. But ultimately, he relented to their request and allowed for an earthly Israelite king. After the first king proved to be unfaithful, uh, King David, a man after God's own heart, was anointed by God to rule Israel. Now, even David faltered in his devotion to God, but he led Israel and the kingdom grew. Through David's son, Solomon, the kingdom of Israel powerfully occupied the specific land that God had promised Abraham, and God's blessing flowed to and through Israel, Israel to the surrounding peoples. Now, subsequent kings didn't fare quite so well, and they divided the kingdom into north and south. There was civil war. The cycle of disobedience, discipline, repentance, and blessing continued, but with a clear trajectory towards greater discipline and disobedience. Despite countless warnings given through God's prophets, the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, their disobedience gave way to discipline and annihilation. They were destroyed. The northern kingdom was conquered by the, the dreaded Assyrian military in 722 BC. And the 10 tribes of the northern kingdom, they're lost forever to this, to this day. The southern kingdom, with Jerusalem as its capital city, came to a similar point of judgment in 586 BC. The Babylonian military, uh, the, the Assyrian uh, empire gave way to the Babylonian empire and the Babylonian military destroyed the temple. This was the center of society and the unique dwelling place of God among his people in the, the southern kingdom of Judah. The Babylonians tore down the city walls. They rampaged the kingdom and they carried numerous people far away from Jerusalem into exile, really close by the original land that God had called Abraham out of to come into the promised land. His people were, in a sense, back to square one, exiled. Now God's promised kingdom to Abraham, it seemed to be out of reach. It really felt that way. It seemed to be out of reach. There was a remnant of Abraham's descendants that remained in this ruined and poverty-stricken city of Jerusalem. And it's to these ruined people of Jerusalem that the poem of Isaiah 52 is written. So hopefully this gives you a sense of the, the context in which this proclamation was received. 
How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, you watchmen, lift up, uh, listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. So Isaiah 52, verses 7 through 10. Good, good news. This phrase is used in a generic sense throughout the Old Testament. I, I might come home and, and say to, to my wife, I have good news today. Something, something happened in the, in the church or something to be excited about. And so the, this word is used, the, the Hebraic version of it throughout the Old Testament. But here in Isaiah 52, we begin to see it taking shape as a theological concept. The poem speaks of a ruined people with watchmen watching on ruined walls. From a distance, they see a messenger. They see a messenger coming into the ruined city, and this messenger is bringing good news. This messenger is bringing the gospel. Even their feet are beautiful due to the news that they bring. Peace, good tidings, salvation. The God of Israel still reigns even though the city has been broken down. The Lord will return to Jerusalem. The Israelites will see him with their own eyes and all nations and all the earth will see his salvation when this happens, when the Lord returns to Jerusalem. The kingdom promises that God made through Abraham are not dead. Now, it's important to note that this passage is quoted in Romans 10.15. And uh, it's, it's also closely mirrored in Nahum 1.15. And the word used here in Isaiah 52, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, it is the Hebrew equivalent to euangelion or gospel. Isaiah 61 continues the good news theme. The spirit of the Lord, of the sovereign Lord, is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Again, the Hebrew equivalent to euangelion. These poor are the ruined inhabitants of Jerusalem. The heirs of a broken down kingdom, desperate for a future and a return to God's promised glory. Shadows of victory followed through the subsequent centuries. Jerusalem's walls were rebuilt and its system of worship was restored. Yet the inhabitants of Jerusalem were an occupied people. First, they were occupied by the Babylonians. Then they were occupied by the Persians. Then they were occupied by the Greeks. Finally, Jerusalem was occupied by the most powerful and ruthless empire the world has ever seen. This is the Roman Empire. The Israelites, and this is fast forward several hundred years from the prophetic passages in Isaiah, the Israelites despised Roman occupation. They were a puppet state allowed to live with some appearance of self-rule 
but they were dominated and they were taxed by the Romans. This is why tax collectors were so hated in the Gospels. Uh, they did not have the kingdom that Abraham was promised. They wanted the kind of kingdom power that the Romans had and felt it was their birthright to have that kind of kingdom, pay, uh, that, that kind of kingdom power. Now, through this occupation of the Romans, as well as other empires, there was an expectation of Messiah. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This was the cultural backdrop into which Jesus was born. Jesus was born to little fanfare in an occupied country. The people longed to see the Lord enter Jerusalem and consummate the kingdom promised to Abraham and to David. They longed for, they longed for victory. They longed to be part of a victorious kingdom. Even the Pharisees asked Jesus repeatedly when the kingdom of God would come, as you see in Luke 17, 20. So, this brings us to the New Testament Gospels. And I want you to hear Mark 1.1, understanding the narrative and the story that's led us up to this point, what the people felt, what they had experienced, the promises in which they hoped. Isaiah 9, ringing in their ears as a promise for victory to an occupied people. Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the good news, of the gospel, about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He's the one, finally, the one who would set us free, an occupied people free. This is the story about how God would bring his kingdom rule and promise to fulfillment. Now hear this from the perspective of a first century Jew living under occupation. Try and feel what they would have felt in hearing this announcement of good news. The announcement particularly that comes in the gospel as Jesus announces the good news, as John the Baptist announces the good news. There is good news. The kingdom is coming and has come. There is hope. There is victory. There is a way forward. The Abrahamic promises will once and for all time come to fruition through the Messiah. This was truly good news for which, for, for which the Jews living in an occupied country would have been desperate. So here's what is crucial to understand in reading the Gospels. When Jesus speaks of the kingdom... When he speaks of the good news of the kingdom, the people to whom he is speaking, they are predisposed to think of this in one way. They're predisposed to think of this in one way. 
and that is military conquest. Even Jesus' hand-picked disciples, the men that he chose, they could not get past this preconceived notion of military conquest, the kingdom. So, Luke 9.51, this is a simple but very important verse to the Gospel of, of Luke. It's when the whole narrative turns and we see that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. In the rest of the Gospel, until we get to the Passion narratives, it, it is Jesus journeying to Jerusalem. And remember the promised Messiah. The promise of Messiah is that he would return to Zion. He would return to Jerusalem to consummate his kingdom. Uh, and the people understood this as military conquest and victory over the Romans in their context. So from 951 in Luke, from 951 on, Jesus is moving towards Jer Jerusalem. Along the way, he's teaching his disciples that his kingdom principles are much different from what they've understood. In order to be greatest in the kingdom, one must be a servant. Jesus taught that citizens of his kingdom would love their enemies, wash others' feet, care for the poor, and recognize their utter dependence on God, their need for him. It was to be an upside-down kingdom where the greatest was the least. Now, this next passage might illustrate what I'm speaking to as far as the expectation of the kingdom, uh, maybe more than any other in Matthew chapter 20. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Seems very clear, right? Seems very clear. Well, the disciples and the, these other followers of Jesus didn't quite understand it with the clarity that we have looking back. Right after this, just, just, just next uh, in, in the story in Matthew 20, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking. Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom the Father, uh, for whom they have been prepared by my Father. I'm in trouble with that last line there. When the ten heard about this, just a little bit more. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's happening in this story? Jesus is predicting his own suffering in death and resurrection. 
But his disciples and the mother of two of them in this story have this fixed belief as Jesus is journeying towards Jerusalem. We're moving towards something and Jesus is about to consummate his political, earthly, governmental kingdom through military conquest. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to kill them. And he's going to install Israel as the, the dominant regional, if not world, power. This was the fixed expectation that even when Jesus said things like, I'm going to die and be raised to life on the third day, you see his disciples are obtuse. They're not getting it uh, because they have such a fixed belief that this is how things are going to happen. Um, they're, they're confused, even his closest companions. So on the heels of Jesus speaking of his own suffering, the mother of, of uh, James and John comes to Jesus and, and she asks, what she's asking is, when you win this military conquest, this victory as you're entering in Jerusalem, can my sons, basically, can they be in your cabinet? Would you give them cabinet positions in your new government? And Jesus, oh my goodness, uh, he's so patient. We might look at her and think, what a foolish question. But when we do that, we fail to understand this fixed belief that we would have likely had as well if we lived in that context. Her expectation was in line with everyone else. This is why what happened next was so shocking. Jesus did indeed enter Jerusalem to bring about his kingdom rule. But he would do this by subjecting himself to the hateful, legalistic, political, and religious leaders in Jerusalem. And by allowing himself to be murdered by a way of torture and crucifixion at the hands of the Roman occupiers. This, this is not the plan. Uh, even the disciples who had heard Jesus' own testimony about his, about his death, they were shocked. They were dejected when it finally happened. In their eyes, it was inconceivable that the kingdom of God could be, could be installed through the death of Messiah until Sunday. The tomb in, in which Jesus' body was laid was found empty. He was risen from the dead, alive and glorious. Now, at this point, his disciples and all people could finally understand the gospel that Jesus had been preaching all along. The kingdom would not come by military conquest. And it would not come by political victory, but by death and resurrection. And we see this, uh, we see this gospel articulated numerous times throughout the rest of, of the scriptures. It, it is the foundation, this gospel, of Jesus' death and resurrection. It is the foundation for all theology and Christian belief. Good doctrine leads to it. False teaching creates a pathway that departs from the gospel. How, however far off it is, the inevitable destination of false teaching is something other than the gospel. However far off it is, it might seem so far off, but if, it's, if the teaching is truly false, it creates a pathway that will end somewhere else, somewhere other than the gospel. So with that backdrop, let's get at a definition of the gospel. 
like other theological words, there's not a precise definition given in the scriptures. We, we have to synthesize the teaching of scripture into a succinct definition. The, the definition in and of itself is not, is not infallible, but hopefully it, it can be helpful. So in order to arrive at a definition, I've used two passages here. Mark 1.1, which we've already seen in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 3, the second half of verse 3 through verse 5. So Mark 1.1. 1, 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So you could read the beginning of the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And through this verse, we, we can understand a few things. The gospel is about Jesus. The good news, the good news is about Jesus. We see this very explicit in Mark 1.1. This is why the, four, the first four books of the New Testament, they are, they are referred to as, as gospels. All four of them are narratives about Jesus. The gospel involves not just the actions of Jesus, it involves Jesus' identity as Messiah and the Son of God. We see this again very explicit. It's the good news about Jesus, who is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And lastly, as I've already mentioned, the gospel is recorded in the first four books of the New Testament. Okay, the second key verse here is 1 Corinthians 15, second half of verse 3 through verse 5. Now, this is the earliest Christian creed that we have. And before I go on, let me, let me read it. For what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. This is the creedal formula that summarizes the gospel that was passed on in the early church. Uh, it's, it, it reads like a formal statement of beliefs. And Paul, would have, he would have received this for, formulaic creed during his trip to Jerusalem just five years after the resurrection. This is very, very early. It's earlier than the book of 1 Corinthians itself, which is also very early. And the information about that trip that Paul took to Jerusalem is found in Galatians chapter 1. And uh, just a word on that. This is the early uh, creedal nature of 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5 is not a conservative evangelical position. This is uh, widely held among even Ill irreligious New Testament scholars. So what is the content of the creed? Christ died for our sins. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15. He died for our sins. Number two, this happened to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. Number three, he was buried. Number four, he was raised. And number five, his, his appearances. And a note on his appearances, they, um, they validate both the reality and the physicality of the resurrection. That this was, a, this was an event, a real event in history. It was not a spiritual experience. It was not something perceived emotionally. Jesus bodily, physically rose from the dead. He showed himself to people. He interacted with them. This is also a validation of 
the authoritative teaching of the apostles who were directly commissioned by the risen Jesus. So his appearances are, are important in what they accomplished. Okay, so here's, here's a working definition of the gospel. It takes these points into account. And again, this is the definition that's not infallible, but I hope it is helpful. The gospel is the true story of Jesus' identity as Messiah and Lord. His death on a cross as the sacrificial offering for the sins of mankind and his bodily resurrection from the dead. Gospel is the true story of Jesus' identity as Messiah and Lord, his death on a cross as the sacrificial offerings for the sin of mankind, and his bodily resurrection from the dead. This gospel definition is consistent with the scriptures, the historic teaching of the church rooted uh, in the early church councils, and it, it reflects the Protestant evangelical tradition of which Awakened Church is a part. Notice, this is all about Jesus and his work. The gospel is about Jesus. It's not about us. It's not about us. It's not about any periphery thing, action, or service, or fruits of the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he has done. This is the good news of the kingdom. This is the good news. The good news is Jesus, his identity as Messiah and Lord, and what he did in history, that he came, he died for the sins of mankind. It's a sacrificial offering. And he is risen, victorious, forever. He is alive. This is the good news. Um, this is our kind of definitional period uh, for this morning. And we, we've, we've wrapped that up. I want to pause for comments or questions before we move on to discussing some differences in the way that we would uh, define, describe the gospel. So uh, one thing I will say also, just maybe to take the pressure off, because I see some people writing really fast. <laughs> um, we are going to provide two things at some point later on this week. Number one is the video and audio from this time. Um, where you'll hear some beautiful historic Christian songs as well uh, in the background. Uh, and uh, number two is the transcript of this. So you'll see this all in writing and have access to that later in the week. And, and it might be helpful for you to review that. Again, I wouldn't use that um, as an excuse not to take any notes. I would advise taking, taking notes. Uh, so that you can really engage thoroughly with this, but you will have the opportunity to, to review this, either the video or the transcript, um, in, in whatever way you'd like. So, yeah, let's pause, let's break for comments, questions, uh, what's on your mind after that first section. Yeah, so it's, um, the short answer is no. I do not, and if, if you've been around me at all, you'll know how, I know you're a big fan. I'm a big fan. 
how crucial it is that we, as followers of Jesus, look to his second coming, when he's going he's gonna to come back, he's going to raise the dead, he's going to restore all things. This is our future hope. Um, based on the, the definitions we see in the scriptures, I would not, I would not count that as, uh, it's, just, it's not in the creedal formula in 1 Corinthians 15, where kind of Paul says, first things first, this is the gospel. And so I would, I would put that squarely in the camp of, this is later on in the story, and this is implied by the gospel, and it is of great importance for the life of the church to look to Jesus' uh, future coming. Yeah, other comments or questions based on that first section? How are we all doing? You guys, you guys with me here? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right, do we want to move on? Any last... Uh, you want to stretch for a second? You want to stand up? You want Tyler Day to tell you a joke? Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, I've been thinking all morning. Be amusing if there was like some kind of some not inappropriate but like shadow through one of the windows. You wouldn't be able to see who put it there. But that'd be slightly amusing. Okay. Well, I'm somewhat confused by that. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's let's keep rolling here, guys. Um, okay. In addition to answering the question, what do we believe? It it can also be helpful to an, answer the question, what do we not believe? Uh, the answers to this question can bring a greater level of, of clarity. I think in really helping you understand and take ownership of your beliefs to discuss what you don't believe, that's what we're going to do next. Are there other traditions that would define the gospel differently? Now, I don't mean a difference in nuance or the very specific words or, or word order of what I've I, I put forward in our gospel definition. Uh, those differences are, are absolutely to be expected when we're looking at something systematic, uh, I, I'd like to look at differences that are a bit more substantive. How does this gospel definition differ from others outside and even inside the body of Christ? Okay, first, cults. Um, let's first d d just describe what a cult is. Uh, you're going to hear different Different definitions, uh, uh, soci sociologically, uh, a cult is, is one thing, um, a high control group. That's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about theologically, and here's a, a good definition. Theologically speaking, a cult is a religious group that derives from a parent religion, such as Christianity, but in fact departs from that parent religion by denying, either explicitly or implicitly, one or more of the essential doctrines of that religion. There's something uniquely challenging with cultic religious beliefs. You, you may find that a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, and these are the two largest cults that are uh, non-Christian religions that have departed from a parent religion of Christianity, you may find that a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness w would agree 
with the points laid out in our gospel definition. In fact, you might find that a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness might agree with just about everything you would say in a conversation or everything that might be said in a church service at Awakened Church. This is why it is so important to define our terms. For example, the foundation of our definition is Jesus' identity as Messiah and Lord. Okay, this is paramount to the gospel. Jesus' identity as Messiah and Lord. Now the question is, what do we mean by the word Lord? We are using it in a particular sense. This is why it's capitalized in the sentence. Uh, and we're using it in the sense of the New Testament writers. So, and I think you'll find this next part helpful. I decided to just read and quote a uh, philosopher, apologist, theologian, William Lane Craig here on this because I think what he's shared is very, very helpful. So follow along with me here. And I'm uh, quoting directly from William Lane Craig. <clears throat> the New Testament writers faced a very thorny problem since the word God, ha-theos, refers to the Father. How could it be said that Jesus Christ is God without implicitly saying that Jesus Christ is the Father, which the New Testament writers did not want to say? They wanted to affirm that Jesus is God, but they knew that Jesus was not the Father. He was distinct from the Father. So how could they say that Jesus is God without saying that Jesus is the Father? This was the difficult issues that the New Testament writers faced. What you find as you read the New Testament is that they exhibited an incredible ingenuity in finding every other possible way to affirm the deity of Christ without coming out and simply saying blanketly, Jesus is ha-theos, Jesus is God. This is why you don't find very many statements in the scriptures that say in a sort of straightforward way, Jesus Christ is God. Because that would be to confuse the Father and the Son. Therefore, rather than say that the New Testament writers tried to find every other way they could to express the deity of Christ without saying that Jesus was ha-theos. For example, they used the title kurios and applied this to Jesus Christ. Kurios is the Greek word for the Old Testament name of God. We translate it as Lord. I'm going to read that last eight sentence one more time. Really trying, I know it's difficult maybe to follow along with this, but this is, this is important and useful, and you might want to review this, this particular section later. For example, they, being the New Testament writers, used the title Kurios and applied this to Jesus Christ. Kurios is the Greek word for the Old Testament name of God. We translate it as Lord. But in the Old Testament, this is the name of Yahweh, God's name, sometimes mistransliterated as Jehovah, Yahweh, the great I am. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, so this is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, called the Septuagint, Yahweh is rendered by the Greek word kurios, which is our English word, Lord. What the New Testament writers did was they picked up this word for Jesus Christ. So rather than calling Jesus ha-theos, God, they chose the Old Testament word for Yahweh, Lord, and called Jesus Christ Lord. 
Then they applied to Jesus Christ Old Testament proof text about Yahweh and said that these were actually referring to Jesus Christ. Uh, and you can find this in William Lane Craig's Defenders series. Uh, and there's a link to it there, and we'll, we'll send that information out uh, with the transcript uh, and all the, the resources used as part of this, this course. So the last point here that he makes, it's really the proof that the New Testament is not referring to Jesus as Lord in any other sense. Because this word uh, Lord could have a generic meaning as master, leader, the sense that you have feudal lords and, and vassals. But the last point that he makes is the proof that the New Testament writers are, ref are, are referring to Jesus as Lord in one particular sense. Romans 10.9 and 13 are a key example of this. Romans 10.9. Oh. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Clearly identifying Jesus as Lord. In the same thought, just a few verses later, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In Romans 10.13, Paul is quoting Joel 2.32. This is a, a quotation from the uh, Hebrew Old Testament, which refers to Yahweh. Joel 2.32 2 is un, uh, unequivocally referring to Yahweh, the Lord God, um, on whom everyone uh, who, who calls will be saved. Yahweh is translated kurios in Greek. Jesus is clearly the Lord to which Paul is referring to in Romans 10.9 and Romans 10.13. Therefore, to say, to say, and this is kind of a summary statement, to say that Jesus is Lord is to say that Jesus is Yahweh. To say that he is Lord is to say he is Yahweh. It's to say that he is divine, uncreated, possessing all of the divine attributes. To say he's Lord is not just to say he's master. It's not just to say he's leader. It's not just to say he's our elder brother. It's not just to say he's the firstborn among the dead. It is to say that he is divine, possessing all of the attributes of God. This definition differs so significantly from the way that Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and any number of pseudo-Christian cults would define the term Lord. It, that, it, that it actually renders those groups wholly outside of the church and completely non-Christian by their very nature. So let's look at these two groups as an example. Um, the following are two quotes from authoritative sources on Mormon theology or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. First is from the history of the church. God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. It is necessary we should understand the character and being of God and how he came to be and how he came to be so. For I am going to tell you how God came to be God. One of the essential doctrines of Mormon theology that you will be hard-pressed to find and get someone to understand and admit to in conversation, and, and maybe they don't understand if you're speaking to a Mormon who's not well-educated in their doctrine, is that God is God, but he once was not. Like us, God had the divine spark and the opportunity to become exalted as God and went through a, a process through which that took place. In the same way, we have the opportunity for the same process. This is the teaching of uh, Mormon theology. The next quote here, 
among the spirit children of Elohim, the firstborn was and is Jehovah or Jesus Christ, to whom all others are juniors. There is no impropriety, therefore, in speaking of Jesus Christ as the elder brother of the rest of humankind. Let it not be forgotten, however, that he is essentially greater than any and all others by reason, number one, of his seniority as the oldest or firstborn, and number two, of his unique status in the flesh as the offspring of a mortal mother and of an immortal or resurrected and glorified father, of his selection and foreordination as the one and only redeemer and savior of the race, and of his transcendent sinlessness. So many of these things sound wonderful. Jesus is sinless. He's the first. He's the best. He's the Lord. He forgave our sins. But what you can't fail to see in this quotation is that Jesus is a created being. This is inconsistent with Christian theology and it is inconsistent with the gospel. It renders the Mormon gospel a false and different gospel because this piece of the identity of Jesus as Lord, Yahweh, and Messiah is something that they get wrong. The following is a quote from an authoritative source on Jehovah's Witness theology. Uh, he was a spirit person, just as God is a spirit. He was a mighty one, although not as almighty, or although not almighty as Jehovah God is. Also, he was before all others of God's creatures, for he was the first son that Jehovah God brought forth. Hence, he is called the only begotten son of God, for God had no partner in bringing forth his first begotten son. He was the first of Jehovah God's creations. Again, Jesus is described by Jehovah's Witnesses as Lord. Um, years ago, I, I had a, a, a small group leader partner, one, wonderful guy, and he pointed me to this website that he was excited about. I think one God, one Lord. Uh, trying to distinguish between the, uh, the, the, the divine attributes of the Father and Jesus as Lord. What he failed to realize was this website was it was representing Jehovah's Witness theology and was uh, propagating false doctrine that violates the absolute uh, essential core of Christianity, that Jesus is not a created being. He was begotten not, uh, in the flesh, not, not created. Uh, he is Lord, and he possesses all of the divine attributes. Okay, uh, moving, moving forward here continuing to speak on differences. Progressive theology, I think, hits a little closer to home. And to be honest, it's the ideals of progressive theology, they're pushing up against us, whether we recognize them or not. And I'd like to start us here uh, with, this, with this quotation. Miracles, it is true, do not happen. But of the marvelous and the inexplicable, there is plenty. In our present state of knowledge, we have become more careful, more hesitating in our judgment in regard to the stories of the miraculous with which we have received from antiquity. That the earth in its course stood still, that a she-ass spoke, that a storm was quieted by a word. We do not believe, and we shall never again believe but that the lame walked, the blind saw, and the deaf heard will not be so uh, summarily dismissed as an illusion. This is a quotation from Adolf von Harnack. 
in his essays on the social gospel, answering the question, what is Christianity? Von Hardack was a leading voice in German liberal theology. This might feel a little random to you, but I want you to know that still today, there is no greater influence on secular religious teaching, secular Christian teaching, than 19th century German liberal theology. I hear von Harnack's ideology and even older German liberal theological constructs when Ohio State students share with me what they're learning in their New Testament classes, sometimes word for word. The bottom line uh, is that von Harnack rejected Jesus as a divine miracle worker. He emphasized the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, and the infinite worth of the soul. It's possible in his view, and this is uh, kind of expositing some of this quote, it's possible that in his view, some of the healing events in the New Testament occurred and we simply don't understand the, natu the natural mechanism by which they occurred. There are no miracles. This is what he's communicating. Jesus is certainly not divine in any kind of unique sense. Von Harnack's thesis was that Christian dogma in its conception and development is a work of the Hellenistic Greek spirit based on the gospel of Jesus in the New Testament. That basically, uh, basically he believed that the original teachings and spirit of Jesus were hijacked by Paul and other Greek thinkers who made a myth out of the man and turned him into something and someone he did not purport to be. Another closely associated strain of thought is that Paul and Peter were ideological opponents, that they were opponents in the early church, that Peter represented Jesus in Jewish Christianity, while Paul represented the Greek version of Christianity that made Jesus into a myth. Paul's version eventually won out, more or less, and that's what we're left with today, uh, according to this school of thought. Um, now, uh, Paul's, ver uh, Paul's version of Christianity is different than the version of Jesus, and it's essentially opposed to that of, of Jesus' version. This view has been thoroughly discredited, thoroughly discredited. The ideas of those uh, who began to teach this, again, in 19th century, 19th century Germany, these ideas have been shown to be demonstrably false by New Testament scholars. These ideas have been rejected by even irreligious academics. Yet, Yet, Ohio State students taking a New Testament class today are being introduced to these ideas oftentimes as if they are novel. Uh, and it, what few students know is that uh, they are often hearing outdated, demonstrably false theories that have been largely rejected by the academic community, even, again, the irreligious, non-Christian academic community of New Testament scholars. Years ago, this, was, this is my own experience at the world-renowned Columbus State Community College. Um, 
My uh, history of Western civilization professor, years and years and years ago, taught the same theory. Paul versus Peter and Jesus. She played up Paul's rebuke of Peter in the book of Galatians we read about in Galatians and told a story of the origin of the church that is not consistent with reality. It's not consistent with history. She was taking a page out of the books of 19th century German liberals. That's where this information comes from. Um, also, uh, I'll share that this same professor wore a huge necklace of an idol, the woman of Willendorf. It's like a naked woman, faceless woman. That was part of her like, daily outfit. Um, that's irrelevant, but I thought you might find that interesting. Uh, so next, I want to share a modern-day quote from uh, a man by the name of Greg Carey. He's a New Testament professor at Lancaster Theological Seminary and a member of the United Church of Christ. This is an unequivocally liberal denomination. Today, Jesus' followers stand two millennia removed from Jesus' direct gospel proclamation. But our own gospel need not veer far from the one Mark summarizes at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Christians believe that in Jesus Christ, God's kingdom has drawn near, and it does draw near. This is the gospel. That is the gospel. God's work revealed in Jesus continues through those who follow him. Where community is built and healing occurs, the gospel breaks out. Let me read that last sentence again. Where community is built and healing occurs, the gospel breaks out. Where mercy is offered and justice breaks through, God's kingdom is on the loose. Where people encounter the blessing of God and reconciliation with one another, gospel happens. The time is here. God's kingdom is afoot. Get ready and believe the gospel. This quote contains some very nice sentiment. But as an heir of the old school liberal theologians, Carey separates the gospel from the identity of Jesus, from his death for the forgiveness of sins, and from his resurrection. According to Carey, the gospel breaks out. It's about, it's about healing and community building. Now, community building and healing are are wonderful, wonderful, necessary things. But I hope that we've seen clearly that they are not the gospel. They are distinct from the gospel. And here's the trap. Here's the trap. Within the framework of what might be considered progressive theology, there is a tendency to take what is secondary and place it as primary. In other words, progressives want the fruit of Christianity without the real Christ of Christianity. Without the authority of Jesus, without the lordship of Jesus, without the uh, atoning work that he did on the cross for our sins and through his resurrection. But in reality, everything, in, everything ends and begins with Jesus. His true identity, according to the scripture, is death for our sins and his resurrection from the dead. Those who come to believe the gospel will experience transformation and they will, they will likely bring transformation to the world around them. But transformation, whether it be internal or external, <clears throat> it is secondary. It is, it is a secondary thing. The gospel is primary which means that Jesus is primary. Let me explain to you why I think this is so paramount. 
a number of years ago, I was speaking with a close friend, and this friend was at one of our services, and, and uh, the service closed with this strong call to action. This friend, she was stirred up, but the, the call to action was centered around a proclamation of the gospel, and she protested to this. I want to do something, she said. You stirred me to action, but you gave me nothing to do. In my friend's mind, the proclamation of the gospel was, was nothing, or at, at least nothing of great significance. She was correctly seeing the, the brokenness in our world, and she was, looking, uh, she was looking for an avenue to enact social change, and, and that ought to be celebrated. But she failed to see the enormous opportunity that is gospel proclamation. The identity, death, and resurrection of Jesus is so glorious that its simple proclamation is changing lives all around the world. It is such an amazing thing, the good news of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done, that simply proclaiming it is truly in real time, in real life, changing people. Now, my, my friend was not a progressive Christian, yet I believe she was unwittingly influenced by progressive Christian teaching that de-emphasizes or it de-emphasizes at the least, or uh, even goes as far as to deny the, uh, the truth of Jesus as Lord and his work on the cross and through the resurrection. Uh, and again, it's important to define terms. There's no authoritative theology for progressive Christians, but <clears throat> for those progressives that uh, adhere to, uh, that adhere to the theology of von Harnack, which is many, and many have been influenced by uh, old school liberal German theologians. They don't necessarily know it. Uh, they're, not, they're not aware of where their ideas are coming from. But for those who wholesale give way to that system of belief, it's my view that that is a religion, again, that is something distinct from authentic Christianity, because it is, it is a denial of Jesus' authority as his identity as Lord. Okay, next I want to look at another perspective on our gospel definition that is a very different variety. Uh, cults, of course, are outside the body of Christ. Progressive theology, it's more nebulous, but to the extent one believes the teachings that I just mentioned, they may find themselves rejecting the Christian gospel. Full gospel theology comes squarely from within the church, from brothers and sisters, uh, brothers and sisters who confess genuinely to our gospel definition and the lordship of Jesus, yet there, there are differences. The concept of the full gospel, it, it might be the most foundational theological concept within Pentecostalism. This is the fastest growing strain of the church around the world today, by far. Uh, assemblies of God are the largest Pentecostal denomination, and, and they serve kind of as the standard bearers. Churches like Hillsong, was formerly uh, in the Assemblies of God, and they're Pentecostal in nature, but uh, th they might be a touch closer. They're not Assemblies of God anymore, officially. They might be a, a touch closer to the middle uh, than some others. Bethel Church in Reading would probably be the most popular example of a church that, again, was formerly Assemblies of God, and is, is not anymore and is a bit on the other side, probably out uh, a little farther from the middle, a little closer to the extreme fringes than uh, 
than most other Pentecostals. Also, much of what you see on Christian television or what you'd hear from a faith healer, uh, particularly a faith healer on Christian television, would represent Pentecostal theology. Here's the foundational scripture from Romans 15. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus and my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey by what I've said and done, to obey God by what I've said and done, by the power of signs and wonders. This is the key here. Through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, probably saying that incorrectly, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. In this verse, Paul speaks of what God accomplished through his ministry leading the Gentiles to obey God. This happened by what Paul said and by what he did, by the power of signs and wonders. Pentecostals, they rightly perceive that God performed signs and wonders through Paul, that those signs and wonders, were, they were relevant. They were part of what brought about such fruit through the ministry of Paul. This is where we agree. Uh, we also agree that signs and wonders are possible today and that God is still working miracles around the world. We should not hesitate to ask God for anything. He is, he is caring and he is mighty. The difference is in the way that Pentecostals borrow the term full gospel. They, they, they borrow the full gospel terminology from these verses in Romans 15. God performed signs and miracles through Paul, and he used those to convict Gentiles of the gospel truths. Paul proclaimed the full gospel. Therefore, the gospel includes signs and wonders. Now, this is not a logical conclusion to draw from this verse and from this line of reasoning. It, 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 it doesn't follow the rules of logic. Um, a quote from Bill Johnson, who's one of the most popular um, Pentecostally influenced preachers today. Power must be displayed for this gospel to be revealed for what it is. The key word being must. To touch the hearts of people without power, it's not good news. Now, hear what he's saying. That it is not complete, it is not full. It is just partial without the power of signs and wonders. Uh, we do not believe this. The outflowing of this conclusion is, I think, is obvious. An overemphasis on signs and wonders, it dismisses the many times in the New Testament that the gospel was proclaimed without signs and wonders, the majority even. And it puts an unreasonable and unbiblical expectation on every individual believer as they seek to proclaim the gospel. That essentially it's, it's inadequate without signs and wonders. It's only a part, it's not the full gospel. We would say, no, 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 no. The full gospel is the identity of Jesus, his death for our sins, and his resurrection. That's it. Authentic signs and wonders, as glorious as they are, have nothing to do with what that gospel is. And frankly, I, I think this ideology can lead to an overemphasis on signs and wonders that often produces counterfeits. When it must be there, it has to be there, uh, it can produce counterfeits. And I think we see that often these days. There's another feature within Pentecostalism 
Uh, and you might hear this communicated by non-Pentecostal charismatics. It's an underlying idea. And it's, it's also common to progressive Christians in another way. It's worked out differently. But here's the idea, essentially, that Jesus taught the gospel of the kingdom and that Paul taught the gospel of salvation. And these are two distinct things. Strong progressives believe that Jesus preached two, or that, that Paul and Jesus preached two different gospels. And they believe Paul's was counterfeit. Uh, some Pentecostal or charismatic Christians would affirm that Jesus and Paul preached two different gospels. Paul's is not counterfeit, but yet they still preach two different gospels. They're both valid, but we need the gospel of salvation to be born again. Uh, we need the gospel of the kingdom uh, to be obedient to Jesus' command for signs and wonders. Um, and so uh, the gospel of the kingdom in this view is essentially that Jesus will, will most definitely heal your physical ailments right now. Right now. Not when he comes back in the future and fully consummates his kingdom, but right now. And the subtext is that any lack of, of, of healing, of momentary healing, is due to unbelief. We differ. This is not what we believe as a church. We differ on this point. The gospel of the kingdom is the gospel of salvation. And the gospel of salvation is the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of Paul is the gospel of Peter, is the gospel of Jesus, is the gospel of James, and so on and so forth. There is one gospel. There is one gospel by which we are saved. Some, have, some I think, have failed to understand an appropriate answer to, to this question. Why does, and it, it maybe has led to the, the confusion that I just mentioned, why does the gospel seem so much more clear in Paul's preaching than in Jesus' preaching? Why does it say, it's more succinct, it's more clear, it's more systematic. Um, and think in your own minds, what might be the reason for that? What might be the reason for that? Anyone want to try their hands? What, what might be a reason why Paul's gospel seems more precise or clear than Jesus' gospel proclamations. The events have taken place. The events have taken place. It's very simple. It's very simple. Jesus had not been crucified yet when he's speaking in the gospels. We've got to, we've got to understand this when we're reading the gospel, when we're looking at the way he relates to people, when we're seeing the things that he is explaining. Again, remember the expectation of the people to whom he is speaking in the gospels. Paul is looking back on what Jesus had done. It had actually happened in history. Now, Jesus still did talk about what he was going to do. He still talked about it. It was still clear, but it is different looking back, describing the gospel, these events, not only Jesus' identity, but these events that had already taken place. And when we understand that and can take a step back and read the scriptures in context, I think it will clear up some confusion that many, many people have had trying to understand why is there a different flavor to the four Gospels in the way they talk about the good news than the flavor that we see in Paul's writing and Peter's writing. Okay. Um, uh, the, for the last part of our time here, I'd like to talk through the, the next 20 minutes, Gospel implications. Um, we've talked through gospel definition. We've talked through gospel differences. And here are some implications. Number one, justification by faith. 
individuals, this is our belief, individuals are justified by God and reconciled to God by grace through faith alone in the gospel. Individuals are justified before God and reconciled to God by grace through faith alone in the gospel. Now, I can say faith in the gospel or I can say faith in Jesus. I can do that because of our gospel definition. If the gospel is some ethereal ideal regarding societal change, faith in the gospel could never bring salvation. If the gospel is about Jesus' identity, his atoning sacrifice for our sins, for sinners on a cross and his resurrection, faith in the gospel, it is faith in Jesus. The two are one and the same. And this, this may be the most important doctrine of the Reformation, sola fide, faith alone. This was corrective towards the teachings and practices of the Roman Catholic Church. The individual must believe the gospel in order to be reconciled to God. There is nothing else. There is no work outside of faith that is uh, a saving, justifying work. The key text here is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith in this, not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's such a beautiful verse because it makes justification by faith, uh, by God's grace through faith, so clear. But it also elevates the importance of works that are secondary. Secondary, secondary to our justification. Now, there are varying perspectives on just what, what faith is. Some uh, evangelical churches, you may hear faith described as believing that the gospel is true and expressing that belief. These, these kind of churches might, might talk about a second decision to submit your life to Jesus, to the lordship of Jesus, or to following Jesus. Um, kind of differentiating between belief that and belief in. Other evangelicals would not differentiate between faith that Jesus is Lord and faith in Jesus as Lord, which would indicate a surrender of one's life to his lordship. Now, we don't have some official view on this as a church. Uh, personally, I lean towards this second view, and, and uh, it's that, that Peter's call to repentance in Acts 2 and 3 is synonymous with New Testament faith or Romans 10, 9, confessing that Jesus is Lord. Uh, that there is a belief, not just a belief that, but a belief in. Uh, generally speaking, though, Protestants, they do share this view uh, uh, that this is an implication of the gospel, justification by faith. This is it's one of the hallmarks of the Reformation. Praise God for that. Uh, the consequences of our divergent views are significant. We ought not think that Protestants and Roman Catholics are essentially the same, uh, albeit minor differences, or differences in modes of worship or style or something like that. Now, we're not saying that faithful Roman Catholics are outside the body. I'm not saying that, outside the body of Christ, outside of Christendom. But the differences run very deep. They matter. And I, I am concerned of uh, just a trend. Some have been drawn to the Catholic Church for various reasons, 
and failed to see the inconsistencies between the New Testament and Roman Catholic dogma. The Council of Trent was the Roman Catholic Church's official response to the Protestant Reformation. This kind of summed up the Counter-Reformation. Began in 1545. Its proclamations are still binding and believed by faithful, knowledgeable Catholics. This, the Council of Trent is no less authoritative for Roman Catholics practically than the scriptures themselves or than any other catechism or official teaching of the Catholic Church. Um, so I want to describe three ways that uh, good, good Roman Catholic doctrine will disagree with what we mean when we say justification um, by uh, grace through faith, faith alone. Number one is that good works cause the increase of justification. This is from the Council of Trent. Uh, if, if anyone saith that the justice received is not preserved and, and also increased before God through good works, but says that works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained. This is, this is our idea, that, that good works are the necessary fruits of justification obtained. This is what we believe. Uh, but not, continuing the quote, but not an increase thereof, let him be anathema. This is, at the very least, this word anathema means excommunication from the Roman Catholic Church. Depending on who's uh, defining anathema for you, they, they might uh, go much further than that in terms of what it means. Catholics today tend to describe it just as an excommunication from the Roman Catholic Church. May in fact mean much more than that. Um, so this is the first way that faithful Roman Catholics differ from this um, Protestant ideal. Number two, the church can administer justification. So the question is, can, can the church administer justification? Two quotes here. Again, from the, the, for this is from the Catechism of the Council of Trent. Now, if you grew up Roman Catholic, you might have gone through a catech you might have gone through the Catechism of the Catholic Church in 1994, or there's an Americanized version of that um, from around that same time period as well. These are, these are official, universal t teachings of the Catholic Church. But understand that a new catechism in no way, in no way supersedes an old catechism. They're all binding and valid for all time on the Roman Catholic Church. A Roman Catholic cannot in good conscience reject any teaching from the Council of Trent. It is authoritative uh, from, from God through the church. So you see here, it being necessary, therefore, that a power of forgiving sins distinct from that of baptism should exist in the church. To her, the church, were entrusted the keys of the kingdom of heaven by which each one, if penitent, may obtain the remission of his sins, even though he were a sinner to the last day of his life. So in this section in the Catechism of the Council of Trent, there is the idea that your sins are completely absolved and forgiven at baptism, your past sins, but your future sins, your ongoing sins, there needs to be a separate uh, mechanism for them to be justified. And the teaching is that that mechanism is the church. Um, and uh, an additional quote here, but if we look to its ministers or to the manner of which it is to be exercised, the extent of this divine power will not appear so great. For our Lord gave not the power so sacred a ministry to all, but to bishops and priests only. This is the power to forgive sins. 
The same must be said regarding the manner in which this power is to be exercised. For sins can be forgiven only through the sacraments when duly administered. The church has received no power otherwise to remit sin. Hence, it follows that in the forgiveness of sins, both priests and sacraments are, so to speak, the instruments which Christ our Lord, the author and giver of salvation, makes use of to accomplish in us the pardon of sin and the grace of justification. The idea is that Catholic priests and bishops are the mechanism by which God forgives the ongoing sins of, of God's people within the church. We do not agree with that. We strongly disagree with that. All Protestants strongly disagree with that. And it's a very, very significant difference to what we believe forgiveness is and most definitely to the way we practice, the way we relate to God on a daily basis. The third uh, area here is that purgatory is a means of purification. Uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church defines purgatory as purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven, which is experienced by those who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified. So purgatory, according to this view, is for the Christian who dies in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified. Uh, it's entirely different from the punishment of the damned. This is not hell. This is not God's final authoritative judgment, according to Catholic teaching, but it is the purification for those who are in Christ who are not perfectly purified, which, for the record, is most people, according to the Roman Catholic view. Um, I think the implications are pretty obvious here in, in the fact that Roman Catholics do not view justification in the same way that we do. They don't view justification as a full and complete justification from God, where we are purified from all sins. We are justified before God. Our sins have been separated as far as the East is from the West. They have been removed completely and even a step further. Every single believer has been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ as a gift, a free gift from God. Okay, the next implication is conversionism. This might not sound like the greatest word ever, uh, but it is the belief that lives need to be transformed through a born-again experience and a lifelong process of following Jesus. Emphasis on the born-again experience. Um, there's a historian, David Bebbington, he summarized conversionism as one of the four primary distinctives or characteristics of evangelicalism, which is what we are. We are an evangelical, Protestant evangelical church, and here in that word evangelical, you know what the root is, euangelion. It comes from this word, the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. Uh, this, is, this is what we are. This is what we are. Conversionism is, is, a, is a, an essential distinctive for us. We believe that what Jesus, this is what Jesus was teaching to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And you may be familiar with this verse uh, where Jesus says, you must be born again, born of the Spirit. Um, and uh, I will refrain from reading the verse right now, but you can review that later. And this is on the heels of John 1, 12, where Jesus said, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. We believe that this is referring to the born-again experience that all genuine believers must have. Um, so, 
What this means is that one is not saved by their proximity to the church. It also means that one cannot be justified over time. This is an idea that I think many of us have heard often. Now hear this. There is a difference between the ability to identify our conversion and the actual conversion itself. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not sure of the timing of my conversion, but I am assured that it did happen at one distinct moment in time, that I was born again at one distinct moment in time, that I received the Holy Spirit as a deposit at one distinct moment moment in time. How can one be justified by grace through faith over time? Uh, To say that this happens gradually is like saying that someone is is partially justified, which uh, I I believe is practically consistent with Roman Catholic theology, uh, but inconsistent with uh, Protestant theology. We believe that in one moment, uh, the justification Uh, justification happens in one moment and all of our sins are forgiven. It's not something that one can go in and out of based on their heart condition on a particular day. Our sins are forgiven once and for all. And again, they're separated from us, uh, removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Praise the Lord. Uh, We see the same truths expressed in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Jesus became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, not only sinless, but also possessing the righteousness of God as his gift. Okay, the next implication that I'd like to talk about is atonement or reconciliation, forgiveness of sins, and how exactly that was accomplished through the cross. Uh, The idea is, our idea is that Jesus bore the wrath of God for sinners. And this might seem straightforward to you. I I hope it does. Yet this view is disputed by a number of popular atonement theories. Uh, And and atonement theory is meant to just describe how our reconciliation with God is achieved. What is it that Jesus did and achieved on the cross? So, uh, back here. Here are four popularly known theories. Ransom theory uh, is essentially... Uh, and, and I'm not aware of anyone who does subscribe to this intentionally, but sometimes you hear this verbiage communicated accidentally. Essentially holds the cross as a ransom paid to Satan in order to set ones free from Satan's reign, from bondage to Satan. The problem is that it puts Satan as the one who is owed a debt and requires payment and is accidentally extremely heretical uh, as, as it does that, putting Satan way too high of a place. The second one is moral influence, and you will hear this often. The theory uh, is that it has become widely popular, particularly among, among progressives. And so I say this, I want you to recognize where this is coming from when you hear this. The cross was a demonstration of God's love that will cause man's heart to soften. The purpose was to demonstrate God, God's love. Uh, this view denies that God requires a payment for sin. It rightly speaks, speaks of, his, of his love, but it wrongly misses his judgment and his holiness. Uh, Christ as victor is another popular atonement theory. It proposes that Christ liberates us from Satan and bondage, uh, liberates us from Satan in bondage to sin and decay. Uh, And this is true. This is true. The cross does do that, but the Christus victor atonement theory fails to show how Jesus liberates us from bondage and decay. And so it's it's really not an atonement theory at all. Um, now, I may not even share this view, 
but it is a view, it is an atonement theory that is commonly held by those who oppose this next view, um, uh, which, is why, which is why I share it. This next view, I think this is, this is very important, penal substitutionary atonement or satisfaction, the satisfaction view. This theory says that Christ suffered, f suffered on our behalf. He became guilty of our sins and bore the wrath and punishment from God for those sins. Therefore, the necessary punishment of our past, present, and future sins has been satisfied by Jesus. This is consistent with 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. It's consistent with the messianic passages in Isaiah 52 and 53. It's consistent with the sacrificial system that God prescribed in the Old Testament, where uh, these sacrificial animals uh, vicariously suffered for the sins of God's people. Um, it satisfies God's justice. Uh, this is what happened on the cross, this theory. It satisfies God's justice and shows the horrific consequences of sin while it proves the inconceivable riches of God's grace. Now, I have heard this in our church over the course of the last year as a new novel teaching that substitutionary atonement theory is akin to divine child abuse. This is kind of the old verbiage of a certain strain of intellectuals who really abhor this view of substitutionary atonement. Um, and their criticism of this view is divine child abuse from the father towards the son. I think it fails to recognize two things. First, it fails to appreciate the Trinity. Uh, the cross was no more or less difficult for the Father than it was for the Son, than it was for the Holy Spirit. Um, for the Father to subject his Son to wrath and judgment upon the cross was excruciating. We cannot overemphasize how radical this was. The sacrifice for the Son and for the Father. Secondly, I think this view, this criticism of atone, penal substitutionary atonement theory fails to appreciate Jesus' own decision to take up the cross. John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Uh, this command I received from my Father. It may seem insignificant to you, but I've heard this kind of criticism bouncing around for a number of years in a number of different places. Um, and so I want you to recognize it when you hear it on a podcast or even in a conversation in the church. Okay, and we're close to wrapping up here. The last two implications, the resurrection climax. The resurrection, it's the climax of the gospel. Um, at, at times, individuals can speak on what Christ accomplished through his death to the exclusion of the resurrection. And make no mistake, Without the resurrection, there is no good news. The good news is not good news without the resurrection. Uh, without the resurrection, there would be no verification of Christ's identity or his atoning work. The disciples, they were struggling with this notion of a failed messianic figure. They were dejected until the tomb was found empty and Jesus appeared to them. This gave them tremendous hope and victory. The future resurrection, it's the hope of our salvation. It's the fruit of the gospel for us that Jesus will bring about for us at his return. He will raise the dead. He will fix everything. He will recreate a new earth. We will be raised from the dead and see him and live with him at the center of our lives forever. 
Without Jesus' resurrection, there is no such hope and certainly no such confidence. Jesus was first, we are next. This is our amazing hope because of the gospel. Uh, when we think of Jesus on the cross, we must also think of Jesus, the risen Lord, uh, the conqueror of death. Romans 10.9 makes it clear that uh, belief in the resurrection, believing that God raised him from the dead, it's part of this gospel confession. It's part of the response that God requires. Okay, the very last implication here. We have an obligation to preach this gospel. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. This is his kingdom. Shut out from the glory of his might. So my question is, if not us, then who? Are we not God's people and his children? If not us, then who? How can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, remember this from Isaiah, as it is written, how beautiful are those, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. If not us, then who? And I hope going through this material, taking a fresh look at the gospel, emboldens us, empowers us, excites us, allows us to see our incredible obligation and opportunity to simply proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has done it. He has accomplished what is such good news. It's the greatest story and the greatest truth that men and women are longing to hear. They need it desperately. If not us, then who? Will you be a, a, a person, an ambassador, one who will speak these words, who will proclaim the identity of Jesus as Lord and Messiah, his death on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins and his glorious resurrection from the dead. Will you be that person? Will you live in that way, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ? Not just today, not just tomorrow, but may God make us those men and women till the day we die. May he make our church a gospel-proclaiming church. Would you pray with me here? Lord, we love you, and we thank you so much for the good news of Jesus, who he is, what he's done. Lord, I pray that it would thrill us, that it would empower us, that it would be on our minds, that it would be on our tongues, Lord. Use us. I pray for every person in here, Lord, that as we reflect on this, Lord, that you would help us to live it. Lord, and that today, tomorrow, we would be quick to proclaim Jesus Christ, all that, all that he is, all that he's done, Lord. Help us to influence others in our church to do likewise, Lord. And I, I pray that you would build in this church a greater culture of gospel proclamation. Lord, that we would be unashamed like Paul, unashamed of the gospel, for it is the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Amen. Amen. Amen.